what did you eat for breakfast? <laughs> I always have a big old salad every morning. That's what I have first part, first meal of the day is always a big salad. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 126. This episode is sponsored by Ignite Your Music Career. You may remember in episode 90, I chatted to Craig Dodge about sync licensing and how he makes a living through writing music for TV, video games, and film. Musicians all over the world subscribe to Ignite Your Music Career and earn more royalties, more upfront sync fees, and more recurring revenue from their music. Whether you're a composer, singer-songwriter, band, beatmaker, or instrumentalist, your music can be earning you more money. Internationally acclaimed composer, musician, and music educator Craig Dodge has licensed his music in more than 1,000 TV show episodes, films, video games, and ads all over the world, and he will show you how you can too. Ignite gives you the information you need in a simple, accessible format, and you learn at your own pace. For just $6 a month, you get a video lesson each week on topics related to music licensing, from writing techniques to how to find your markets, and everything in between. You also get tools and activities to build the skills you need to be successful, and each lesson includes a royalty-free sound pack to download and use in your own music. The key to success in the music business today is to diversify your sources of revenue. Ignite will show you how. For more information or to subscribe to Ignite, visit the website at taris-studios.com or click the link on musiconyourownterms.com. Joining me this episode, with a resume as long as your arm, is pro bass player Ivan Funkboy Bodley, who has just released his memoir, Am I Famous Yet? Ivan shares his music business history, starting with college radio, and then working for Epic Records, promoting bands like Living Color. He then discusses what prompted him to go to Berkeley to complete his foundational knowledge in order to play for a living instead of promoting other people's music. We hear about his gigs with Sam Moore of Sam and Dave, Bo Diddley, various on- and off-Broadway gigs, as well as his more recent touring stint with the reformed Humble Pie prior to the start of the pandemic. Don't miss the Spinal Tap references, how washing dishes at a dude ranch led to buying a Fender P-Bass that in turn allowed Ivan to purchase an apartment in Queens, and his grandmother's 102nd birthday. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support, I'd be really grateful if you would consider signing up for the mailing list to stay in the loop with everything going on with the show. Just head over to musiconyourownterms.com and click the link. While you're there, you can also visit the store and grab some merch, or just buy me a coffee and help out with the running costs of the show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today I'm joined by Ivan Bodley, who is also affectionately known as Funk Boy. So welcome and how are you doing? Thanks, man. I'm doing great. Good to see you. I really appreciate you having me on this. No, thank you for coming on. If you wouldn't mind just giving a background of you know what you do in the music industry, and um, we'll start there. Uh, it's been a long and checkered career possibly a dubious career. I mean, mm -hmm. the highlights of the highlight reel, I guess the, the tagline I can tell people is that I'm a professional musician full-time. I'm a bass player, music director for a lot of people. I've played with 50 inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I've subbed in 12 different Broadway shows in New York. I'm an inductee into the Blues Hall of Fame here in New York as well. But I started my, my business my business aspect of the music thing started as a, a publicist at Epic Records. I was a major label publicist in my in my youth, mm -hmm. my first job out of college. And then I decided, you know what? I think I want to play rather than uh, promote other people's stuff. Right. That's fantastic. And yeah, you, you work with uh, one of my favorite bands, Living Color. Mm. Uh, one of my favorites as well. And it was that was in my record label days. Mm. I was their publicist when Vivid came out. I was just just happened to be in the right place at the right time. 
And uh, man, it was so exciting to meet them right as they're bursting onto the scene and also to have a, a small part in, in helping them reach a wider audience. One of the only things I don't, I can't get my camera around to show you right now, but one of the few bowling trophies that traveled with me all these years is the Platinum Album Award for Vivid. Mm. So that's that's been with me for move after move. It's always proudly on my wall. That's a, that's a fantastic album. I just noticed that they're touring with, uh, uh, it's a weird billing, it's Huberstank, yeah. uh, Everclear, and um, I forget the the other band, but it's like three alt-rock bands in Living Color. I'm like, I'm, I'm guessing just because everyone's getting back on the road, these packages are popping up that wouldn't normally happen because they're just, people are itching to play and they'll they'll take whatever they can get right now just to get out on the road but it was a really odd billing it, you know it, it is but you know what back in back in uh back like in the Fillmore days they used to have buildings like that you mm. know Sun Ra would open for Sly and the Family Stone you'd be like well I don't you know on the surface it makes no sense but it actually got a lot of music exposed to a lot of people who wouldn't wouldn't ordinarily have bought that yeah. ticket you know Absolutely, and uh, I saw Van Halen and um, Blanking. Who's the Who's the funk band? Wow! First, first uh, brain fight of the interview. That's that's <laughs> that doesn't bode well. But um, they're all they always tour with Van Halen. Uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, yeah, same same kind of thing. It's like a feel good start to the show, and it, it's like a non compete thing where you're not having instrumental guitar person that's bet you know that's opening for Van Halen. So I thought it right. worked quite well. So. Let's talk about your uh, book. I mean, that's what we're here to talk about. A- Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. Um, really entertaining. I-, I-, I really liked it. I appreciate it, man. You know, it it was uh, it was something that I wrote out of, you know, in the process of telling road stories around, you know, uh, dinner tables on breaks from gigs. You know, people would say, listen, you got to write a book. You have to write this stuff down because it's just so many yeah. checkered things. And and, and any odd thing that would happen would invariably remind me of some other odd thing that happened that would, or even odder so i would always entertain my compatriots with uh, regale them with tales of woe from <laughs> days of yore <laughs> and it, it, it you know it came together in the, in the book form very nicely and people seem to be responding to it really well that's cool yeah i mean as you say it's like uh I think you said Spinal Tap is is kind of like the handbook almost it's it was written as a mockumentary but it, it's it happens every day. There, there's not a day. I mean, I don't even mean like exaggerating, but I I think quite literally, there's not a day that goes by when some spinal tapism doesn't pop into my brain. Mm. Either some reference of. I mean, besides the fact that I think we all loved the movie and how brilliant it was. Yeah. But there's just so much of it that rings so true to everyday life in the music business. A few years back, uh, this is about 2007, I was playing the South by Southwest Festival down in Austin, mm-hmm. uh, and I was backing up uh, Sam Moore from Sam and Dave. It was, he'd released a newer album on Rhino at that time. And for some reason, Harry Shearer was backstage. And I went up to him and I said, listen, I'm a big Derek Smalls fan. And I have your action figure, which I do. I have the set of three action figures of uh, Nigel and wow. David and, and Derek. And, and mm-hmm. uh, Harry looked at me immediately and said, thank you for not calling it a doll, because it's not a doll. It's an action <laughs> figure. I was like, no, no, I, I got it, bro. I'm with you. <laughs> Did it come with a green globule? There's no green globule, but there are some things. I forget there are some accessories in it. There's like a mini album cover of like Shark Sandwich, and like a, a signed uh, guitar pick that's like the bass that they stand on. There's a couple of like, you know, I think there's a cucumber in Derek's uh, in Derek's accessories, <laughs> I believe, I believe. That's fantastic. And you've done an average of 228 gigs per year. Are you up to your 3,000th gig yet? I, I'm probably well past it. I, I, you know, these are sort of like, wow. I started keeping very meticulous spreadsheets, you know, for income tax purposes, mm. among anything, you know, because as a freelancer, you have to know all of your expenses uh, that you can credit against your, uh, you know, your deductions you can make. So, and, and I just find sort of statistics and, and, and spreadsheets kind of interesting and fun. So I started keeping those probably about 20 years ago. So I have to extrapolate backward and estimate a little bit, but I think I'm probably well past sure. 3,000. And uh, this year it's going to put a hurt on, or the pandemic year is going to put a hurt on the, on the average. Yeah. <laughs> but 
the second half of this year, the private party work seems to be the first one coming back, even before the concerts mm. and before the Broadway shows. So I think I'm going to have a very civilized second half of 2021 if things go well. That's cool. Yeah, speaking of Broadway, have you ever done a Broadway show that's that you were the main musician, or has it all been sub work? Uh, I've had a chair off Broadway okay. uh, at a show called This Ain't No Disco, but all of the on-Broadway work so far has been as a sub. Mm-hmm. That said, I've done, again, over 12 shows, and I've done close to, I think, maybe 500 performances between all of them on Broadway, like Rock of Ages ran for six and a half years. Yeah. So I did like 300 shows at Rock of Ages alone, you know, over the course of the run. It's good that you brought that up because my wife and I took a trip to New York. We went to see it at the Helen Hayes Theater, August 8th, right, sure. 2014. Constantine was back for that week, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I think Joe Hookstra was playing. I could be wrong about that. Were you at that show? If you, uh, do you remember, or I'd say there's a one in ten possibility that yes, I was absolutely <laughs> at that show. You know, so I may have seen you play live. It's entirely possible. I did that show a lot. I loved it. It was so much fun. And and Joel, you know, was one is one of my one of my good buddies. You know, we would sit up. You know, you saw the the bands on stage in costume and oh, makeup yeah, the whole killer. time. We had choreo- choreography. We had uh, lines we had to do. You know, it was like it was it was great. It was unlike any other show I've ever done. Yeah, it was an absolutely fantastic show. I love the um, anecdote in your book about how you bought a four hundred and something dollar bass back when you was this <laughs> when you were in Berkeley or before? Oh, way proceeds, before. Way before, but proceeds went to buying an apartment. Is it in Manhattan or? It's in Queens, in uh, Forest in Queens. Hills, Queens. Still, still expensive. Yeah, yeah. The the price per square foot is well above where uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I grew up. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, right. I bought that base uh, with proceeds that I made from washing dishes for a summer at a dude ranch in Colorado. If you can believe that. That's right. And this was before I had any aspirations to be a professional anything. You know, I didn't. I wasn't even a bass player at that point. You know, I I decided. Um, I think when I got home that. September. My birthday was is in September. It's right always at the start of the school year. It was like my senior year of high school. And my dad said, uh, "What do you want for for your birthday?" I said, "I want bass lessons." Mm. So we had a friend of mine, a good friend of mine named Rick Lazarus, who was a year ahead of me at school. He's the the road manager for Josh Turner, the great country star these days. But you know, back in those days, we were just high school kids together. So for fifteen dollars a week, he taught me how to play bass and sold me his used. Fender P bass for four hundred and twenty-five dollars, whatever I said it was. I still have the receipt somewhere, and <laughs> yeah, it led to a forty-year career. But it, there's no way to see that coming from the front end of it. You yeah. know, you, you only know that in retrospect. Absolutely. I almost, when I first read the the caption, I almost thought it was that you'd sold it because it was such a rare instrument. Then I read the paragraph and everything, and <laughs> I'm like, oh, that makes more sense. What was it that that drew you into bass in the first place? Was there a specific, you know, musical artist or or anything that got you into that? Yeah, there were some specific things, but I have a uh, a theory about why people choose the instruments they choose, and I don't think they choose them. I think I think your instrument chooses you. Mm. You know, not to be too too uh, uh, ethereal about it, but it's like there are certain personality types that go with certain instruments and and their function in the orchestra or in the band you know when you meet a lot of bass players and I certainly have over my travels you know re- you realize you know we tend to be not not always but we tend to be the tall guy because the bass looks tall so like you know it, it's the bigger instrument so it's a bigger person and also because of the function of the bass in the band you know unless you're out front playing a solo most of the time you're supporting the rhythm that's going on, you know, so you have to have the personality that's not, you know, a grandstanding showboater. Whereas Joel Hoekstra, who you just mentioned from Rock of Ages, Joel knows how to go out front, play his ass off, flip his hair while he's doing it and just be, a, he's, <laughs> like, he's that guy. He walks out of the front of the stage and goes, I'm here, you know. And the bass player, we get seldom get asked to do that. You know, occasionally they give us the the elbow room to go do it, and I'm happy to go do it when it's time. But you know, I think there's a personality type that tends more towards lead guitar or bass or trumpet or whatever. So, and that said, once I sort of became interested in the bass, you know, I saw very early on I saw Mother's Finest open for um, the Atlanta Rhythm Section in Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
And Wizard, their bass player, I just was mesmerized by him, what he was doing. I said, I don't know what this band is doing. And Moses Moe, who I've, I've worked with in recent years, the guitar player for Mother's Finest, I, I, you know, I said, I don't know what these guys are doing, but I want to do that. And this is even before I even played, played music. Mm. So I definitely wanted to do that. And then I remember also seeing, believe it or not, Rick James on the Midnight Special on television, you know, on Friday night, uh, hosted by Wolfman Jack, and he had a single out there called You and I. Yep. And it was basically a four-note repeating ostinato figure bass line that I was able to sort of pick out by ear on a friend of mine had a bass that only had two strings on it. Mm-hmm. You know, the E and the A string, which are, are the money notes. So those are the notes we get paid for. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was able to sort of like get a sound, get a, a, a groove going right away on the instrument. So I thought, all right, this is this is the one for me. I got to sort of figure this out somehow. Killer. Yeah, I mean, from what I read, you definitely seem to have a broad spectrum of, you know, technique-based stuff. Like you've, you've done bow work on an upright bass, flat wounds, and, it, you know, I guess that's more a function of just finding the right sound and you know, tone for the gig. That That's 100% a part of it. In, in fact, we were talking about that first Fender bass that I bought, you know, the 1978 P bass. And I went through Berkeley with it and I it was sort of my working instrument for the first bunch of years. And then I switched to five strings and then I got all these boutique custom built hardwood nonsense. And then I <laughs> ended up going back to Fender's sort of later on, but newer Fender's because I, I had this one that sort of was like, felt kind of sentimental. I didn't want to leave the house with it. But then I did a couple of tours with Humble Pie. Mm-hmm. And when I saw pictures of Greg Ridley, the, the late, great Greg Ridley, the original bass player for Humble Pie, he was playing a blonde 70s P bass. And as soon as I saw his picture, I'm like, wait, I, I have a blonde 70s P bass. In fact, that's the one, that's the bass, you know, that's the, my first instrument. Right. So I took that bass, I put flat wounds on it, I put foam under the bridge like he had it, and suddenly, like, you know, I had the humble pie sound, you know, because that was the instrument that I had. So, yeah, it's a, it's a function of like sort of figuring out what's the right tool for the job. And then in addition to that, trying to stay employed, you know, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades musically. Like you have to be able to play, you know, in, in a Broadway pit, there's always one song that's on upright that's played with a bow, you know, which I didn't grow up doing at all. So you have to learn how to do that you know, any possible nature and genre of gig, you know, if it's, if it's something that's going to uh, keep you employed and keep the, keep the rent paid or the mortgage paid, I'm all for it, you know. So mm. I do listen to all types of music, so it took a while to also figure out how to play it and try to function within those different genres. Killer. And so the, uh, the, the Humble Pie gig, is that still a thing? That is to to be announced like right now okay. because the pandemic shut everything down you know we had some plans sure. we were going to go to england we were going to do a recording we we're going to do this we we're going to do that and that was a year and a half ago so mm. right now as i said the the wedding and private party business is coming back the concerts are just starting to get booked like you know, i'm sure you've seen some things out but it's not full on yet like we don't know mm. yet if we're going to be able to tour when where and how so uh, don't know. Hard to say right now. Okay. But that was set up as a licensed, not really, it's not really a tribute act. It's more of a, a band sponsored presentation. Like I saw Queen, the, the what what is it called? The, the Queen one that, that Brian May kind of created right. as a touring band to go out. So this is kind of the same sort of thing. It is, it is, you know, and they're, they're what I call them legacy acts, you know, because there mm. are a bunch of them out on the road, uh, like Blood, Sweat and Tears, you know, I think I even listed like, there's a web article that I saw, you know, of 13 classic rock bands currently touring that have somewhere between zero and one original member, but they're completely sanctioned by the trademark owners. Jerry Shirley is the original drummer in Humble Pie. He owns it as his band, um, but he's not touring these days. He had a hip replacement, so, you know, we're, we're mm. carrying on in his stead. And our leader, Dave Caldwell, uh, we call Bucket, Bucket was... Mm-hmm. Uh, the he was in humble pie yeah their, their last album that they did with greg and with with jerry so like you know he's sort of the bridge the legacy link uh and before that he spent about 13 years as a guitarist in bad company as well so you know the band is 100 bona fide and legit but you know steve marriott is no longer with us p 
Peter Frampton quit the band in 1971, so he's not available. You know, Greg Ridley has passed on. So this is what Humble Pie has become, and we're, we're enormously proud of it, you know. Mm. So is that, is that something that you would be able to write for, or would that have to be the owner writing songs to, for them to go play, or is it just basically, here's the catalog, let's just like present the catalog, and that's really it? I, I think... At the moment, it's designed as a touring entity rather than as a recording entity. Yep. And I've worked with a lot of acts over the years who do that kind of thing. You know, like they're sort of uh, trademark bands. Like, you know, I, I detailed it in the book a bit. Like I used to work with the Shangri-Las and the Marvelettes mm-hmm. and the Drifters and the Coasters, you know, and the Platters. And, and all of those were all trademark legacy acts, you know. So they weren't necessarily recording new material, but they were certainly going out and presenting the catalog, you know, and that's... I think that was, that's historically what we've been doing with the the latest version of Humble Pie as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, thing is, you've got you've got tribute acts that go out and play, you know, a tribute to a band, but some of them are very good, but some of them are really terrible. Right. But I think this sanctioned kind of thing, you get some really good caliber musicians that have the backing, and then it really presents the music very very well. Whereas these people that are doing it. You know, maybe may, you know the love is there, but maybe the talent, the talent, or the maybe they're not. They don't have the insider information for oh, you know, this this really should be presented in this like time signature or, or or key or whatever it may be. The technical details. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, it just brings the level of quality up. I think. I think that's right. You know, and and again, it's it's a unique sort of situation, sort of. Uh... You know, the bands like Leonard Skinner had sort of been continually touring for the last, you know, 45 years. Mm. And, uh, you know, was Gary's the only one, I think, from the original band. But they've got some guys who've been in Skinner for 30 years. Right. 35 years. So, you know, those guys play Skinner better than Skinner ever played Skinner. You know, it's like you can't you can't argue with them. They're bona fide. They're real. Right. But, you know, is, are the, the guys who, who died in the plane crash? No, they're not available. So. Right. Absolutely. So the, this morning I was just going through YouTube and, and I, I found your uh, videos, interviews with your grandmother, oh, yeah. which I thought were fantastic. <laughs> Great. I, so she, she just turned 102. 102 in January, lives on her own, can't hear too good, can't see too good, can't walk too good, and she's sharp as a tack, you know? Is that, is, so is that the reason, like, I, it, it sounded from the interview that I haven't watched the whole thing, but um, that she, she lived in New York the whole time, is that correct? She's, yeah, she's born and raised in Manhattan. She's never driven a car in her life, you know. Was that, was that the reason you decided to move to New York uh, as your home base or? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Yeah, my mother's family's from here. So my grandmother and my aunts all live in Manhattan. So as a child, you know, we would come to visit the family once a year, once every two years, something like that. So uh, from a very young age, I was sort of exposed to New York City and got to see what it was about and grew to love it, you know, as a, as, a, as a young person. So that was part of it. It felt familiar. Thing number two was, you know, growing up in a small southern town, being a little differently configured than the average, you know, mm-hmm. person in a small Christian southern town, you know. I knew that I needed a more cosmopolitan environment mm-hmm. to live in. I needed to, I needed to be in a bigger pond to sort of be, feel safe and sound. So that was thing number two. And then thing number three was sort of as I was going through my travels in my original college years, which were down in New Orleans, and then in my music business life, which was in New York and Los Angeles, and even I I went to go start playing in London, the music that I seemed to most vibe with and aspire to seemed to be emanating from New York City. Like the artists that I always, you know, was immediately turned on by, like, you know, I don't know, John Schofield or some of the, you know, the fusion guys in the mm-hmm. 80s. I was like, yeah, they're all in New York. So those, that's where I thought that I needed to be to um, be a successful sort of working musician. Uh, and I may or may not have been right, but I, you know, I haven't had a day job in 25 years. So something's working out. You know. Absolutely. So, so Detroit didn't really uh, pique your interest at all. I, I think Detroit is a, a magical place. You know, it's just it's a wonderful town. And I grew up, you know, my college years, like I said, were spent in New Orleans. And New Orleans mm. is a dark and magical place. The music there, you know, I I say a lot of my musical education was was gained at the feet of the Meters and the Neville Brothers. Like literally, I'm at Tipitina's, staring up at my friend Aaron Neville, looking at him. 
you know, just in awe. I would see them about once a month. So like you just absorb this musicality and this, you know, this funk and the second line grooves and all this stuff, you know, the whole, a whole ethic about art and music. But when I graduated from uh, Tulane down there, it was, this is the mid eighties. The town was in a tremendous recession. Mm. The oil business had gone through like a tremendous recession and the petroleum business was kind of like one of the major employers in Southern Louisiana. So, I figured like I could live in New Orleans and I could probably play every day, but I didn't know if I could actually make a living, pay rent right. playing music. And I feel the same way about Detroit. Detroit's this beautiful town, but I don't know if I could actually pay the rent in Detroit. Mm. And that seemed sort of to be like, you know, I, gotta, I don't, that's a work ethic thing, I guess, you know, from I got from my parents or something. Like, you know, do what you want, but, but try to be independent doing it. You know, don't keep right. asking us for money. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So what was your experience like in England? Because obviously that I'm from England originally. I saw you had to uh, take, was it the restaurant owner to court because they owed you so much money <laughs> and that kind of ended the experience and that's why you went to Berkeley? Am, that, am I right in saying that? Uh, that? Yeah, that's pretty close. Yeah, I, I went over there. I had an opportunity to go over. I had a girlfriend at the time who sort of was offering me a place to stay. So I was like, great, I'm in, you know, and this is right as I was quitting the record business because I knew that mm. I didn't want to be a professional marketing person the rest of my life. I wanted to play music rather than to try to sell other people's music. So I went over there with no particular plan in mind other than to try to make as much of my living from playing as, as, as anything else. And I did okay. You know, I, did, I was playing in um, pubs and restaurants and I got a, a decent gig although it, it did end badly with a small claims court <laughs> judgment in my <laughs> favor but you know not being a, a UK resident creates some problems with the home office if you know what I'm saying so like mm -hmm. I was either going to have to try to find some job or a, a school to sponsor me to give me you know a work visa or a student visa or I was going to have to go ahead and, and come back to the states and it got to that point where I said all right if I'm really going to sort of make a go at being a full-time professional musician, and keep in mind, this was before Berkeley, mm -hmm. so I didn't have a full music school education. I had a lot of kind of street knowledge. I've been playing for about 10 years, you know, and, and again, learned in New Orleans and played a lot down there. But I didn't know the names of scales and chords and, you know, all the all the arrangement stuff and the harmonic stuff. So I said I kind of needed to get uh, an education to sort of really cement my knowledge if I was going to go ahead and, and try to make a living at it. And, and at that point, it was sort of like, well, the easiest place to do that was going to be back in the country where I currently have a passport mm -hmm. and am welcomed. So that's when I decided, <laughs> all right, let's go back to the States. And if we're going to go back to the States, then it seemed to me probably the music conservatories that I would be most interested in would be sort of like University of Miami, North Texas State, or Berkeley. And because and th those seem to be sort of the, the jazz slash jazz rock conservatories available. Uh, and I'd always heard about Berkeley, and I knew a lot about Berkeley from talking to Berkeley graduate Will Calhoun from Living Color. Mm-hmm. You know, and I told him, I said, I think I'm going to go to Berkeley. He's like, check it out. Check it out before you spend that money. Make sure you're doing the right thing. And I said, you know, I think I definitely want to do this. And he said, all right, if you're going to do it, go find um, Ed Tomasi. Like he gave me the, the, the teachers that I needed to find that were going to go really kick my butt. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm going to go pay this money, I need to go really like go in hard. So he gave me some really solid advice. So I, that's why I was able to get there. And I was in England for about, I guess, a year and a half total but I was okay, you know, it was a, I was a great experience. I'm glad I had it, I had a fabulous time there. And uh, then it was back to back to Boston to go to school. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I've had quite a number of Berkeley graduates. <laughs> I, are you familiar with Marbin, jazz fusion band at all? Oh, no, I don't think so. Like if, you've have, if you ever wanna hear shred guitar and shred saxophone, <laughs> dual soloing, they're, they're fantastic. But Danny, the guitar player said, I'm probably one of the only people to actually graduate from Berkeley, you know, jokingly. I, I share that. I share that distinction. Yeah, everyone. He he his, he was just making the point that a lot of big artists that go there typically drop out very quickly and then go on to become successful in their band life. Like Dream Theater, for instance, is is one example right. that I'm very familiar with. Um, 
So yeah, uh, any any um, fun spots in Boston that you were you know you played regularly during um, your Berkeley time? Yeah, you know I was in a band there called the Mercy Beat, mm-hmm. and it was a a really cool indie rock band. And we played kind of all over. You know, we played in all the clubs on Lansdowne Street and all the places you know that you could get original gigs in those days. And uh, I had a really good time in Boston. I was there a little. Short. My my time there was only about eighteen months because I knew that I wanted to sort of get back to to New York and and try to get working. So I got I did manage to graduate in in eighteen months. I went five straight semesters to get sort of get in and get out. Because wow. what you're saying is absolutely true. They at that time and this is thirty years ago now, but I don't know what the stats are now. But at that time, I think it was less than a third of people graduated from the school because when you go to get a gig. Nobody ever says, let me see your Berkeley diploma before we mm-hmm. allow you to play in our, in our band. You know, like that's just not how that end of the business works on the one hand. And on the other hand, exactly as you say, you know, people would tend to get gigs like, you know, they know the kids from Berkeley. So they, they have a certain level of professionalism, sort of even if they've only been there a short time. So, yeah, they get hired and they're like, well, what do I need to be here for? Do you know Lenny Pickett, who's the saxophone player from um, Saturday Night Live? He's the music director at Saturday Night Live. I'm not familiar. He was also uh, the lead tenor player in Tower of Power for What Is Hip and okay. those guys. So I remember yep. talking to him. I've only met him once, but we had this conversation about music school. And Lenny is, uh, or was, self, completely self-taught. So he's become the music mm-hmm. director of this major network television show, just using the, the skills that he had learned in the trenches, as it were, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he told me, he's like, I always kind of regretted not going to music school. And I, I looked at him, I'm like, Lenny, everybody at Berkeley who I went to school with would give their left nut to do what you do. You know, you, you went to the University of Tower of Power. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not about where you matriculate to gain these skills. You can get them anywhere. And, and he certainly got those skills and has, like, you know, become this world-class successful player without having a music degree, which he certainly doesn't need. You know, he could, he could teach there. He doesn't need to graduate from there, you know? Right. I, I guess the other thing, too, is if you're, if you're wired that way to be, you know, to be self-disciplined, to actually learn what you need to learn, it doesn't really matter if you pay money or, or you just get it off, you, you know, today, YouTube or whatever, as long as you have that discipline. I think going to a school is is more you get that push from the teachers to a point absolutely 100 percent. and i i actually when i was still in london i was studying with a guy bass player there named uh, joe hubbard Mm -hmm. and joe the big i'm sure you know joe the biggest thing he did was he did like the gary newman the cars tour he was on that he was like the bass Mm -hmm. player and that whole sort of thing so joe has this very tremendously great you know teaching apparatus and he has this curriculum that you have to go through consecutively you have to go through sequentially that's part of the thing you know so i was studying with him privately for whatever 50 50 pounds a lesson or whatever it was you know once a week kind of thing and he taught me i didn't know this at the time but i studied with him for about six months he taught me the entire berkeley harmony system (laughs) methodically taught it to me so when i went to berkeley when you go to that school, they give you uh, an entrance placement exam once you get there because everybody's got a disparate, different level of stuff that they've learned right. on their travels. So they're trying to figure out, they're trying to place you what classes that you're in. So uh, because I'd studied with him, I placed out of the entire two years of Berkeley Harmony requirements. You know, he saved me two years of classes. Right. Um, so I could start taking like higher level harmonic elective stuff from day one. And then coupled with that, I went into from the same exam, sight reading 101. So like I had this really stilted kind of knowledge where I could just barely Mm. read music at all, but I knew the entire Berkeley Harmony system because I I studied with it privately and not even known that I had been taught that at the time, you know? Awesome. I'd like to go on to a section where I ask the same kind of questions to everyone. I I dub it the uh, non-quickfire question round. (laughs) So let's start off with what one resource be it a book, podcast, blog, would you recommend to artists looking to be successful? And successful is a relative word, so take it how you want. Right, right, right. What one? That's such an interesting question. I don't know that I have one because it it also, to me, depends so much on what your field of interest is. 
for sure. You know what I mean? Like it, there, because there are experts, as you say, on YouTube now. There are experts in every single genre of whatever whatever thing you're doing. You know, if you want to learn how to play the zither. There's some guy who's like a zither master. You can go look at watch his YouTube channel and really start to learn things. What was really super helpful to me in the advent, this is kind of in the early days of YouTube, but like, you know, when we when I started playing, if you wanted to see a musician, you had to go to the concert, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe catch a TV appearance that would happen once a year or something like that. So like there was no possible way to understand what they were doing with their hands but like when all this you know archival video footage started surfacing like suddenly you could watch the who and see john entwistle and see what he was doing with his hands mm. you know and to me that just was mind expanding to sort of like be able to see these guys so like what i like to do is not even a specific blog or a, a channel that i follow but you know if i I like to go down those rabbit holes. Like there's some one or some song or some genre that I'm studying. I try to research and, and look at everything I can on that person and see if you can actually, you know, how are they, how are they holding their body in space as they're performing? You know, like are there, is there tension in their hands? You know, you, you kind of gain all these micro pro tips just by, by seeing it done. Mm. Cause once you see it done, then you can figure out how to emulate it, I think, better. Awesome. Um, actually, that that's one one uh, question I'll springboard off of that. I, I de definitely have seen people who don't necessarily play upright bass a lot, I, and maybe this is just pertaining to them specifically, but it, it's one of those instruments that could potentially cause a lot of damage. Like, do you, have you ever had any problems with your hands changing position and or, or any like RSI or anything like that? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Really, the upright is something you have to really be careful with. I've I've only had a tendonitis type flare up once in my career, and this was because of an upright gig, and it was a I got called to do a four hour wedding gig on, all on acoustic bass. When I'm usually I play more Fender bass than acoustic these days. You know, I consider myself a Fender principal acoustic doubler. And I and I did this whole thing, and the it was an outdoor thing. The amplification was not good; it was hard to hear. So I was kind of digging in, kind of too hard, right. for four hours. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, my wrists were on fire, and they kind of stayed on fire for most of that summer. And it was a real drag. Mm -hmm. Like I really was trying to figure out: Do I need to go to acupuncture? Do I need to, you know, like what do I need to do? To sort of try to alleviate the situation. I learned all the carpal tunnel stretches that you have to do. And I, I kind of learned those early. So I would use those as, as warm up and warm down when I would have a, an intense playing period on electric bass. But the acoustic bass, if I have a gig on acoustic bass coming up, I know that I need to spend like a week minimum before the gig making sure I play that thing an hour a day every day just not to get hurt. Mm. You know, and that we kind of learn the hard way. Some people are, are skeletally, they're, they're just built, like they don't have problems like that. And I've never had tendonitis on any other instrument for any other reason. But the upright, you really have to like look at what it, the, the physical strength it takes to, to be able to produce a tone on that thing and, and mm -hmm. be mindful of it. Awesome. What is one piece of advice you would give a musician looking to make a living from music? Uh, the piece of advice that I give to people who want to get into the music business or the performing arts, and I say to them, if you can do anything else, do that. <laughs> anything else. Because it can be such a heartbreaking type of pursuit. Like you have, you have to eat an enormous amount of rejection. You have to be persistent in the face of evidence which is should tell any reasonable thinking person like no you need to not do this you need to do something else so if you can do anything else i would say do that first but what happened to me and what happens to a lot of people is like i felt that i ran out of options like there wasn't anything else that i really wanted to do or consider myself you know could see myself doing or felt happy doing so at that point mm. Then you realize, like, oh, crap, I guess I got to do this now, which is what that's what decide, made me decide to go to music school. Like, I need to really learn how to do this and get educated. So if you really want to do it, make sure you have the full foundation for your craft, however you get there. You know, if it's private study, if it's school study, if it's 
autodidactic, self-learning, whatever it is, but make sure your stuff is ready to go because opportunities are very few and far between and you, you seldom get a second chance at it. So you need to be ready, you know, if and when a door kind of opens. So have you, have you ever, it, it doesn't sound like with the, the amount of gigs you do, you'd have time, but have you ever thought about teaching the bass? I, I do teach. I have, especially during the pandemic, mm. I've got about three or four students sort of a week that, that, that come to me for specific things. I'm better in those situations if people have questions. Okay. I have a lot of answers. I can tell, you know, I can, I can talk for days about subject matters that I'm passionate about because I've spent my life studying them. Mm-hmm. I'm a little less effective if I'm designing a curriculum. I mean, I have one. I certainly, you know, have the steps that people need to go through, and I try to figure out if I'm teaching them personally what they most need, you know, what they seem to be less adept at, you know, and I can fill in a lot of gaps. It hasn't been my primary source of income because I've been, as you say, you know, working. I've been gigging kind of thing. So I'm not opposed. It's not my primary thing, but it's it's something that I, I do engage in. Yeah. Awesome. So what significant negative experience have you overcome and what did that teach you? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, there's so many. <laughs> This is what I was going about going back to saying, like, if you could do anything else, do that because you have to eat so much garbage. I had I've had some some epic firings. I've been fired off of some really big, high profile gigs. And what I say to people is that like I've been the guy who's been fired and I've been the guy who's been hired to replace the guy who's been fired almost in equal parts. So a lot of those situations, because being on both sides of it, you start to realize you know, it may or may not have anything to do with you personally mm-hmm. or your skill set or whatever. Like sometimes a head just needs to roll for, for whatever reason to make it look like somebody's doing their job. There was one gig that I got fired off of that shook my confidence so bad that it made me not think that I could do the gigs that I'd already been doing, the gigs that I've already been successful on. And suddenly I was like second guess. I was so in my head for months. It took months to get over. Like, you know, I could hear myself just making stupid mistakes that I'd never made before because I was sort of like thinking to myself, oh, maybe I can't do this. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe, 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 you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to kind of like tamp that down and go, listen, you have you know, how many decades of experience to the contrary. So clearly you're getting hired and rehired, you know, that, that there's, there's got to be a reason. I had to almost like reason myself or talk myself off the bridge to kind of get myself back to sanity about it. But, but man, that one knocked me for a loop. And it's not the only one that's happened a few times. You're like, oof, I guess <laughs> maybe I'm not good at this. Mm. <laughs> or blowing auditions too. That's the other thing too. Like I don't audition well. So like when you blow a big audition, you're just like, oh, all right, well. Back to the drawing board. I'll never work in this town again. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Some of the podcasts I listen to, like, you know, No Guitar is Safe. The thing that comes up the most is the is the audition thing is, you know, you, ha- you have to know the material. That's like the base level. But it's what sets you apart is the ability to hang or, you know, maybe it's some other thing. Maybe it's a personality thing with the, the person who's hiring you. But always. Yeah, no, and that's be- it, it, and it makes sense too because it's it's one hour on stage a day, mm. and then twenty three hours in the train and the plane and the hotel and the bus. You know, like you got to have the hang factor going, and it, it's impossible to go in there. You can't prepare for a hang. Like, yeah, you can shed the music all you want. You can you know memorize the stuff backwards and forwards in all twelve keys, but you know you can't go in there and sort of will yourself to have a personality match with somebody you've never met before. So right. it's a wild card every time, you know. Awesome. What major positive experience um, has given you the push to follow this journey? Mm. Mm. Uh, I think that sort of as you have successes along the way, you know, and they can be l- little things. I mean, I've had some later on, I got some kind of big ones that sort of like justified the whole thing. But it was I was kind of in retrospect, you know. Sort of, but going into it, you kind of like when you have just sort of these mini triumphs, if you will, like, you know, one of the first professional gigs I ever did in New Orleans was playing in a pickup band behind Bo Diddley. Mm. He was touring through town. I, I did I did three different gigs, three different times he was through town. And there's not much to his music 
harmonically. Let me put it that way. Right. There's a lot to his music. It's, it's indefinable. He's one of the architects of rock and roll. But individually, each one of his songs is typically one chord. And he plays his guitar. It's got an open E tuning to it. So if he's got no capo mm -hmm. on the guitar, he's an E. If he's got a capo on the third fret, you're in G. If he's got a capo on the fifth fret, you're in A. That's the end of rehearsal. That's it. Right. So he does these songs. He does a 90-minute show playing these songs that are one chord each. And he's, he was dynamic. He was fascinating. He was never dull a second. It was, it was great to watch. It was great to play. And, and as a bass player, I didn't have to have any musical theory at all. Mm. I, all I had to be able was, was to go bump to bump to bump to bump bump, you know, like have any kind of feel at all. So I was able to be successful behind Bo for these gigs, you know, and, and that felt like, okay, all right, yeah, maybe I can continue to do this. Or like having a bunch of those little mini milestones along the way really kind of builds you a lifelong journey of confidence towards, you know, achieving what you're, you're setting out to do. Awesome. So what, what would be one dream musical gig that you'd get, that you could get with anyone alive or dead? Mm, that's so interesting. There's so many, you know, kind of the basis of all of my musical road history has been sort of stuff that's kind of emanating out of uh, Detroit, Memphis, and New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So like there's so many of the Motown artists I would have loved to play for or would still love to play for. You know, I got to do a year on the road with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, did a bunch of gigs with uh, Richard Street from The Temptations. But, you know, like playing with Marvin Gaye, playing with Gladys Knight, you know, playing with any of Stevie Wonder, my God, you know. And then the the sort of the, the music gearhead side of me is like, you know, oh yeah, Steely Dan, that would be the gig, Steely Dan or, mm. or John Schofield, you know, like all those fusion type of gigs. And I'm not that kind of player at all. That's not really what I've turned out to be. I, I found out in retrospect, oh yeah, I don't do that. But those kind of gigs would just seem like, you know, like enormously fun to me. Awesome. Last quick question before the final one. Is your amplification of choice, and also, do you have any endorsements? Yes, I am a, a Hartkey endorsee. Um, so uh, the last two last Humble Pie tours, I was using two Hartkey 410 XL high drive cabinets with the LH1000 thousand, thousand watt head, <laughs> and that just set up a mighty, mighty, mighty rumble. I love that P bass with flats on it into that rig was just crushing it was great mm -hmm. uh and then on the floor before that i have the the tech 21 bass fly rig i'm a huge fan of that I, you know i never got on board with the sans amp thing early on because i just didn't understand it i didn't understand what it did and what it meant and in my travels i've come to appreciate what it is what modeling is what tube simulation is and that the bass fly rig, and they just came out with a bass fly rig 2.0, by the way, that's just coming out now. What a tremendous piece of gear. Just like every sound imaginable. I record with it. I tour with it. I, you know, the fact mm. there have been gigs that I do that I just fly with just the fly rig and I'll use a rented bass, you know, even that. But like, I know my, my tone is in there and it's just, it's just such a simple, tremendous piece. I've been using DR hmm. neon color bright high def strings, like, you know the fluorescent orange, uh, fluorescent pink on my on my purple metal flake bass. I've been playing Fender basses. I've been playing Gretsch basses. I've been playing basses by a company called Moxie Moxie Guitars out of New Jersey. They custom built me two mm -hmm. metal flake Explorer body, just beautiful monstrosities. I'm trying to think who else. Those are those are my main go tos. Awesome. Uh, uh, yeah, Tech 20, uh, isn't the fly rig available in a Doug Pinnock model as well? There is a Doug pedal, okay. and there's a Doug rack mount. Yep. I'm not sure that the, the fly rig itself is that, that long, mm -hmm. uh, narrow strip that they have uh, like four or five guitar versions of it, including like a Richie Kotzen model. The bass one, I believe, is just the 1.0 and 2.0. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, there's a Doug pedal. There's a, a Getty Lee pedal. And there's a Steve Harris pedal, an Iron Maiden one that they have. Just tremendous. All of them are just 
amazingly sounding pieces of gear. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I did see the uh, picture of you uh, meeting Nico. Yeah. How did that come about? <laughs> so that was funny. That was a fundraiser we did down in uh, in Florida, in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, I can't remember which charity was, actually. But Nico was the celebrity spokesmodel for the, for the charity. Mm. And Sam Moore from Sam and Dave, who I was music director for, was the featured act. So... We had two drum kits on the stage, and we're like, you mm. know, Nico, you want to sit in? He's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, because apparently, uh, and I didn't know this about him, like going back to his days in London before all of his hard rock stuff, he was in soul bands. Mm-hmm. I, I seem to remember that, yep. So he was playing like Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett covers. That's how he came up, you know. So he was thrilled, man. He got to sit in with Sam for like a whole set. And then after the show, we went to the lounge in the casino, and there was a show band there. And they, we said, you know, we didn't ask them. I think they offered to let us sit in. So we, we got up and just were playing our Aretha f- covers and everything else. And Nico sat in with us again there. Like, he wanted to play all night. He just wanted to play soul music. So that's, that's awesome. I've actually kept in touch with him ever since. He's a, he's a dear, sweet guy. Yeah, uh, that's killer. So last question is, what does music mean to you? Man, it, it's it's everything. It's everything. It's it's my hobby. It's my vocation. It's my avocation. It's like, you know, I got started in this whole business just from collecting vinyl records because the music turned me on. It, it electrified me. It, it, it activated all those emotional centers in the brain. You know, it, it, it makes you feel at home when you know, the world might feel like it's against you, but music is always there for you, you know, kind of thing. And that record collecting morphed into working at a radio station, which morphed into working at a record company, and the whole while it morphed into being a musician. And I still collect records. Like, I have sites that I go to, you know, and I'm trolling. Less vinyl these days. It's more like, you know, MP3 downloads. But, you know, anytime I can find an obscure soul record that only pressed 100 copies of a 45 in 1972 i just go i just think that's great Mm. (laughs) i just love it you know it's everything it's everything i do it's everything i want to do and uh, i can't understand why anyone would want to do anything else but that's you know (laughs) that's what makes me dedicated to it i guess absolutely awesome so if people want to um get in touch find out you know everything you're working on right now and especially read the book or buy the book where can they go funkboy.net f-u-n-k-b-o-y.net not funky boy that's what people misspell it spelling counts <laughs> funkboy.net will detail everything it has all my social media links and it has a link to buy the book you can buy it from amazon you can buy it from me autographed whatever you want and all things all things me are there including also my new uh, record that just came out on color red music out of colorado called crab walk and i'm going to be releasing a whole bunch of new material with color red coming up in uh, ensuing months fantastic and yeah at the end i like to uh play a piece of music by the artist i'm interviewing and i think that's what we're going to listen to crab the, the track crab walk fantastic that's great any story about that song or oh 100 this is created in isolation during the quarantine you know, so like uh, me and the drummer were in the room together uh, when we first cut it because it, we did it right before the lockdown. Mm. But then when everything got locked down, then I had to do everything with file sharing and, you know, exchanging stems with my friends. So uh, on that track are Crispin C.O. from the Uptown Horns, who's he playing saxophone. He's the guy who played the alto solo on James Brown's Living in America. Oh, wow. Tremendous player. The drummer is my friend Kenny Soul from the band Dag. Uh, he was also in the band Nantucket before that, and he's also been touring with us with the Sam Moore Band for the last couple of years. James Dower on keyboards, also from the Sam Moore Band. My friend Doug Hendricks, Hendricks on percussion. He was the percussionist on the Broadway show In the Heights. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my all-time heroes in the world, Moses Moe from Mother's Finest, is playing guitar on the track. You know, and I, again, the story I told you before, seeing them live, just completely spun my head around. And to be able to work with him and play with him these days has been an incredible gift. So Moe's in Georgia, James is in Massachusetts, Kenny and I are in Queens, Doug's in Jersey, Crispin's in Connecticut, and we have this track 
which is completely sounds like we were standing in the same room where we did it. But, uh, that was out of pandemic necessity. I learned how to become right. a music mixer. <laughs> fantastic. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, so continued success and uh, stay in touch. Simon, it's been my pleasure entirely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, as this really helps get the word out about the podcast, so other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing. The more the musicians' community collectively learns, the stronger we will become. A rising tide lifts all ships. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering a full range of apparel decoration and promotional items, such as screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and much more. The Skinny Armadillo is now offering a merch fulfillment service, including on-demand printing and a custom-built web store, so you can concentrate on your music and running your business as a musician. Visit theskinnyarmadillo.com or call 817-546-1430 to learn how the Skinny Armadillo can help you take your merch to the next level. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Ivan Funkboy Bodley with Crab Walk. One, two, three. <laughs>